I, I know many of you are uh, new to the mountain area and you wonder what's, what's it like to have springtime in the Rockies. It means that much less winter, okay, is what we say around here. But I love it, especially if you've lived in the desert for 12 years. I'm still not tired of spring. Uh, what's Peter's real problem? Maybe the best way to describe his real problem is for me to give a series of examples of what I think is somewhat similar. A four-year-old boy is signed up for the kids' soccer league by his parents. He's never played soccer, never watched soccer. And so <clears throat> when the first game comes, uh, they just say, just get in there and kick the ball. And he's finding everybody sort of a mast around the ball and kicking it and kicking one another. But he stands to the side and, and, and isn't, never even gets in the game. And all he does standing alone is cries. Um, uh, eight-year-old in second grade is asked to read aloud in front of the class. As he reads, it's quite obvious that his reading ability is under grade level, and so he's teased about it afterwards by his friends. A 12-year-old middle school girl trips on her way to the next class, dropping all of her books and papers, and falls to the ground in such a way that, unfortunately, her skirt comes up and her underwear shows. Every eyewitness only laughs at her. And then, by the end of the day, she gets a nickname that lasts all the way through high school. It's the label on her underwear. A 16-year-old geeky high school boy has his first girlfriend come to him and mentions the, I mean, says these famous words, I just want to be friends. He plays the big secure guy role and he answers her, yeah, whatever. But that night he reads her real feelings about him on her Facebook page. He walks outside to the tree that he used to climb as a young boy, throws a rope over the branch and hangs himself. A young professional woman ends a three-year relationship with a man that she has lived with, sensing that he would never commit and she had to get out now. He moves out, but one week later, the sex tape that they had whimsically made is now online, seen by all of her friends and her parents. It's called revenge porn. A boss spends half the staff meeting explaining your underperformance has only put your job in jeopardy, but everybody else in the staff that is meeting with you, uh, their job performance is good and they will keep their jobs. A father is deserted by his wife and two grown children because he cannot shake his meth habit. He's not allowed in the house or to visit his own grandchildren. He checks into a residential rehab and he's greeted with, you again? All these are examples of Peter's real problem, the, Peter that re, uh, the, the problem that Peter really had. And in our series, which we call Why Church, we're trying to look at some of the intangibles that people are carrying around and that Jesus can bring to the humanity uh, through his church. What Jesus does through his church cannot be duplicated in the schools, charities, governments, but they can be accomplished through God's people because they are the church. And if they're in schools or charities or governments and they're working within those institutions, they, the church, bring Jesus Christ there. 
And one of the unique contributions that was mentioned at the very beginning, grace, it's crazy. But grace is offered to us. And at the church, grace is not just offered, it's explained, and it's applied. So two weeks ago, we looked at one half of God's grace, offering us forgiveness for our sins. When God offers us forgiveness, it really is centering on a legal concept. Our sin makes us lawbreakers. And God's forgiveness gives us a not guilty verdict, even though we know we're guilty. He takes away the penalty, takes away the judgment for that sin. But that's not Peter's problem. Peter's problem was not that he broke a law. Peter broke no law. Peter broke his word. To the friend that he desired to please most, he broke his word because he made a promise that he would never desert Jesus. And yet Peter denies uh, Jesus once, twice, and a third time, just as Jesus predicts. Peter's real problem is he's ashamed of himself. That's the real problem. And he feels unworthy to serve Jesus in the future. Peter still loves Jesus, but Peter concludes himself a failed disciple, only fit to fish for the rest of his life. We said two weeks ago, we were looking at John chapter 1, verses 14 and on, that Jesus comes with grace and truth. Not just comes with it, but he's filled with grace and truth. That means all of Jesus is filled with grace and truth. Well, the truth about Jesus is that he agrees with Peter that he failed. But when he's filled with grace, he restores Peter to Jesus and to God's plan for Peter's life. I want us to look at that instance, not the way that it was dramatized, but the way it really happened, okay? Uh, I think I, I understand the, the, the freedoms that they took. I'm in John chapter 21, and just let me read it again without the drama. Uh, I begin at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus had prepared breakfast for them after that great catch. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. You see, what we are talking about here. It's not the law that Peter broke, but the desire he had to be loyal to Jesus. And what he is going through is what I call the universal big hurt. Why do I call it the hurt? Because Peter was hurt in verse 17 because Jesus asked him that third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Why do you keep asking me? It's not in there, but that's what he was feeling. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. The, the issue of do you love me more than the other disciples, 
because he claimed he would. Everyone else might leave you, but Jesus, I won't. And Jesus brings that up again. And he asks them three times to reflect three times, the three times that he had denied even knowing Jesus. He then tells him the mission that he is to have. His true role, and this is something we all desire, is not to be the great leader sitting at Jesus' right or left in his kingdom. His true destiny is to care for other believers like a shepherd tends his sheep. I want you to know, uh, fishermen, uh, you know, you, you look at them in terms of a scale and where do they rate? Uh, probably just a little bit under engineer, but fishermen, you know, are, are right, right about there. But even lower than a fisherman would be a shepherd. And so if Peter was thinking about, you know, what am I going to do when Jesus comes into his kingdom? Suddenly it's just thrown away. He would not be a ruler. He would not be the pope, even though he would be the pope. But he would be a tender shepherd. And eventually he'd be asked to die for the faith that he has in Jesus Christ. Peter's problem is shame over his failure. He's probably thinking, if I ran once, I'll probably run again. Who would follow Peter with the reputation that he has earned? Who would say, yeah, I'll let you shepherd me? Who would let such an outright, abject failure lead them? And Jesus' answer is, well, everybody. Everybody, because shame is a universal hurt. How do I know it's universal? What's the first thing Adam does after he sins? Hides from God. Is it because he knows he's done something wrong? Yes. But it's also because he says, that relationship is broken. What The, the relationship I had from God before I ate that fruit uh, is now broken because I, I had promised him I wouldn't. And it's not because it was a law that he broke. It was a relationship that he destroyed. So Peter's problem is shame over his failure. And if you look all the way through Scripture, you will find that there's shame, 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 shame. You can't find a really great biblical figure without understanding it wasn't just the guilt for their sin. It was the shame that they could not live up to their word. So everybody will follow him because everybody understands that. Peter just doesn't realize that what people want is not heroes, but real people. So we hide because of the promises we break. We've made them to others, and then we've broken them. And it's not just about breaking laws for which we are guilty. It's also about breaking a cherished relationship in our lives. We're ashamed because we let others down. We're ashamed because we let God down. And we'd rather hide Then look them in the eyes and admit, yeah, I sure did that. You know, scholars, especially social science scholars, have been telling us for generations that we are a guilt culture. You know, in other words, it's either right or wrong. Uh, Either we're guilty or we're not guilty. And it's based on legal standards that are set. And that's compared to Eastern cultures. And that may be true. But now they're saying not so fast. Social media has shown us how easy it is to feel shame and to throw shame. And how many of us can take perverse delight in shaming others? 
and where our guilt culture shows God's grace through forgiveness, the shame in our culture reveals God's grace through restoring honor. Shame is a feeling. It's usually an earned one. But shame, the opposite of it, is honor. So if we are getting over our shame, we understand that our honor in in terms of relationships to others is being restored. And nobody has ever suffered the depths of shame and been bestowed with the heights of honor as Jesus of Nazareth. You see, as we're describing his universal big hurt, we also have to describe the heavenly big hurt. Because when we talk to people about shame, we can't do it without using Jesus as our example. Throughout his ministry, just review with me, his enemies look for every possible way to humiliate him. They claim that his power is from Satan, not from God. That his origin was a place where nobody comes of any sense of honor, that his family heritage had no pedigree, and they even hinted in John that he was the illegitimate child of Mary. But the worst words, and the worst of all, were what he suffered and the shame that was intended, designed for his death. It is all about shame, not just terminating a life. He would be insulted by the religious and government leaders. He'd be mocked and beaten by by soldiers. He would carry his own cross through the crowded streets of Jerusalem so everybody would know that here is a criminal, that he's being shamed in front of you all. He would be crucified, and he would be exposed, naked, something we don't do in our art, but those criminals were usually stripped naked. For all to see how helpless and how powerful, how powerless that a man could be. And yet this, as we are told, was according to God's plan. Hebrews 12 tells us that he endured the cross. Let me read that. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. To scorn his shame means that he, he chose that the shaming of men would have no effect on him. It was a decision he made. The joy of what would happen through the cross means that he would uh, limit or, or dethrone, you might say, the shame that they had tried to throw on him. He scorned it. It means nothing to me. The cross for Jesus was suffered not because of the punishment of men, but for gaining the honor of God. So yes, on his cross, we got our salvation. On his cross also is Christ's honor restored. Philippians tell us, uh, tells us that Jesus Christ comes to earth for the purpose of becoming a servant, obeying God even to the place of being a servant. And not just any servant, but a servant who would die for his father and for humanity on his cross. There was no other way to strip a man more of his dignity. And so there is what happens to him on his cross. There's just no dignity, no honor left. And it's displayed to all of Jerusalem how completely they could destroy someone's dignity. But that is not the end of the story. Hebrew tells us that in response, God gives Jesus the honor of sitting at his right hand. From verse uh, 2. 
He is given the honor of sitting at God's hand. In other words, his honor is restored to him. And Philippians tells us that his honor is restored by God by giving to Jesus a name that is above every other name that's ever been given. It is a name that is so true and so powerful and so filled with power that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't expect you to say it, but I'm going to say it. Amen. It is an amazing honor that God has given to his son. And it goes far beyond what any shame man could give to the son of God. So he carries that name around. And yet we understand that nobody understands shame like Jesus understands shame. And nobody has experienced honor like Jesus has experienced honor from the Father. And now from men all around the world. Therefore, no one knows better how to be healed from shame than who? Jesus. I know, it's Sunday school. The answer is always Jesus, okay? Always Jesus. So it's not just that he's an example of our hurt and our shame. Friends, it's also that he is the one who we can go to to know how to be healed of that shame. What is it that he provides that nobody else can provide? How does he help us from our shame? So similar to Peter being restored, understand that throughout history, Christians have been shamed by the communities around them. They have suffered great loss of honor when they placed their faith in Jesus. They left the gods of their cities. They were ridiculed. They, they were suffering from economic and political punishment, even at times martyred for their faith. The city leaders used both shame and pain to threaten these new Christians. And there are two words that we are told to cling to in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. It says this, Now, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Everything that we might have thought was fairly important to us, our stature in our community, uh, it is lost because sometimes it's just we believe in Jesus. And, and all of that is stripped away from us. And people begin to shame us for our faith. And what are we told? We're told two words. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men that you will not grow weary. In other words, you, you, you take who do you want to be honored by most? You have to make that decision. Who, whose honor are, is most important to you? And he says, consider him. Use Jesus as the ultimate example of a man people love to shame and realize that they're going to do the same to you. In addition, they try to shame us for our faith with certain phrases like, oh, another Jesus freak. You are so backwards and out of touch with your culture. And they even call us purveyors of hate today. Whose honor do you desire? When I first became a Christian, they were saying to me, Oh, Jim, you, you know, you've got religion. And I said, Yeah, I guess I do. You're going to church. Yeah, I do. And, and, and the phrases have changed over time. But they still meant to do the same thing. You're out of the group. You're no longer in touch. 
You don't fit here anymore. It's a social shaming. And by the way, shame deals with our community. Always does. Let let me share something else. In in terms of, I've also noticed this, that there are many approaches uh, to, to dealing with shame, and there's some secular ones which I'm not saying are bad, but they're somewhat limited. What do I mean by limited? Well, we, we take this approach that uh, instead of honoring people with the example of Jesus Christ, we believe we can build self-esteem without God in the picture. And I'm not saying it's all wrong, but we'll do it with ribbons, with medals, with trophies, with written affirmations. And these are not bad. They're, I think they're somewhat incomplete. And I think they're limited. Because basically what you are saying is you have to change your view of yourself by just the words that are being spoken. But it has nothing to do with the eternal relationship with the creator that God has made you to have. And there's something going on inside of you that says my relationship with my creator and what he says about me is of the utmost importance. Now, children may not get this. I know some adults who don't get this. I know I'm a person who struggles all the time. How good was that message? Real good, right? Well, maybe not. We're all like this. But if Jesus said he could scorn the shame, he made a choice to count it as nothing or as unweighty or unimportant to him, so also we have to understand whose honor do we desire most. Um, here's other things I've turned when we're just looking at self-esteem and by the way I I didn't say it's wrong I just said it's limited when we're just looking at it here's what I found out that um, uh, and that's just not my children but other children I found out that the more trophies that kids get the less meaning each trophy has when everyone is a winner no one's a winner And when the game is played and they say nobody is keeping score, because I coached a team where we didn't keep score, guess who kept score? The kids. Coach, we won five to three. Really? How do you know? They keep score. We're like that. They don't want to talk when they lost 16 to three, but they want to talk when they won five to three. Well, there's a second part of healing that I think, uh, healing from shame. And, and, and it's a, what I call a healing reality and knowing whose honor is most important to us. Hebrew speaks to the Christians who had suffered greatly. They have been thrown out of their synagogues. Uh, many have been thrown out of their hometowns. And some thrown out in terms of their families. They've been disowned. But it says this, Jesus is not ashamed of them. Hebrews chapter 2, 11, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers or brothers and sisters. The, the concept here is that there are certain relationships or groups that are very important to you. They're part of your society. But there is now a new one in Christ Jesus. And that new one is what? The new one is the family of God. 
When, when, when somebody comes to Christ, they say, well, the first thing you're going to ask me to do is start going back to church. I don't like church. No, I get that. I want you to become attached to the people of God. The church. That's what's most important. It's not to church, but be in the church. They have to get this, this new understanding that these are the people that understand the honor of God is the most important honor of all. And it says this, Jesus is not ashamed of them. He calls them family. So the cost would be, in many, in many instances, losing stature and honor from one group, but finding yourself with the title of adopted children of God, brothers and sisters of Christ Jesus. One of the great strategies of shaming people is casting them out of the group that they're in. They desire to be honored in those ways by the relationships that they carry. Jesus has a better strategy by honoring them and adopting them into the family of God. Let me ask now, adults, let let me ask if you have taken the time to honor those in your family and those in the family of God that you know. Have you been a part of that of that uh, new family that says, I'm bringing honor not to me, but to the others around me? Um, I, I, I grew up um, um, being called names because I was white in a racially mixed school. And uh, and I got to know them, and it was one of those situations where because I was sort of in a minority, and I had to sit in the back of the bus, it wasn't fun. Um, I had to have all those names, and I couldn't call them names back. <laughs> and uh, so you know they loved turning the tables on me, and uh, they were trying to shame me because I am white. We also learned to shame each other by throwing insults at one another. But now that I'm a Christian, I look at other men and I only give loving insults. <laughs> there's a difference, right? There, there's got to be some difference, I hope. I just throw a loving insult. Like, uh, <clears throat> uh, hey, you're only five minutes late today. Wow, there's vast improvement there. Or, or, or something like, uh, hey, I'm, I'm glad, you know, you, you really clean up good. And I love doing those things, and, and hey, I get them, and I know how to give them. But do you know how to bestow honor on others? Do you know how to say, you are valuable to me, to God, and to Bergen Park Church? That is the display of grace. Parents, if it hasn't happened yet, it will happen. Your children are going to come home and say, I don't want to go to school anymore. It's not that it's too hard. It's that they've been teased or bullied in their school. And they're afraid to go back because they know that the same thing will happen over and over again. And the first thing you want to do is you want to go to the teacher. You want to go to the principal. Here's a list of names. These people, I I think we should kill them. Okay? Or at least punish them severely because my kid is being hurt. Uh, that may not be the right approach. 
How do we help our children consider him? Consider him who suffered so much at the hands of men. You see, if we're just taking the approach of building self-esteem, and again, I'm not against self-esteem, it's not about the trophy case you have or the black belts that you may collect, but you want them to consider him in a way that will last forever because eventually you're going to get to be my age and you can't do the crane move anymore. No matter what type of belt you have, your leg doesn't go that high. You want to help them consider him in a way that will last forever. So let me ask, are you a shame thrower or a shame extinguisher? It's one or the other. As a child, I used to play with these little green army men. Any of you others? I I had the best collection on the block. Little, You have to be over 60 probably to do that. No, maybe not. Okay. So I played with these little green army men. And uh, I set up my own, you know, my own system. And when, when the enemy was hidden in caves and I couldn't get them out, I brought in the troop transport, the half-track, and I took out that green army man with the flamethrower, not the shame-thrower, the flamethrower. And I could point that flame-throwing army man, little plastic green army man, at that cave, and it would incinerate everybody inside. With our words... We can be shame throwers. We really can. And deny the grace of God. With our words, we can be either a shame thrower or a shame extinguisher. You go back to John 21 when Jesus approaches Peter. And look how he restores the honor to Peter. Jesus continues to show him God's love by accepting him first in their relationship being restored. Even though Peter, he knows it, Jesus knows it, Peter has failed miserably. He deserves the shame. His behavior proves it. But Jesus then puts puts him back in the middle of God's people. He says, be one of the lambs. Get back in the corral. Join the flock again. Peter, stop fishing. Return to the sheepfold. And then he restores Peter's purpose. God's purpose for for him. Three times. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. Peter, don't just say you love me. But do what I did with these people. I am a good shame thrower. And I'm learning to stop it. Because it doesn't Reflect the grace of God. And I want to be, you might say, an honor thrower. So that people know they're important to God. Important to Bergen Park Church. And important to me. So friends, maybe it's time for us to pray about this subject. It's it's maybe time to evaluate. One of the things that I can easily think about is how I've been shamed in my life. No problem. I remember the phrases. Back in middle school and elementary school, there were parts of my body that people loved to accentuate. I had the biggest nose in all of the school. I had the thinnest limbs, arms and legs, so they called me spider. And I can go on and on and on because it's not hard to see ways to shame people. What I don't remember is when I was ashamed thrower. And those are the times I need, especially as I do it now, to just to go to people 
and change everything about how I talk to them. Shame thrower, shame extinguisher. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for forgiving our sins, but also thank you for restoring us in our relationship with you and putting us in the family of God. May we be a gathering and family of people that work at shame extinguishing. Lord, just as you were the one who could accept the shamed of your society and give them the attention of God's grace and love, the lepers, the centurions, the tax gatherers, the sick, the prostitutes, as you could restore them through your grace. May we do that to one another and to all we know. We ask this in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Um, there's a lot happening after the service, but if you say, maybe I just want to reflect a little bit, you're welcome to stay in your seat and not be sociable. Also, if you would like to pray with somebody, there'll be people up here on our prayer team. And you just want to bring something up and ask for prayer. You can also do it at the back and the, at the prayer cards. But I, I, all I can say is I, uh, it's like I, a whole new window was opened for me and I realized, <laughs> here's something, 40, 50 years of Christian. I haven't dealt with this very well. Maybe you're asking the same thing.